We're in the year of 2024, only the first month of the year. And guess what? People today are already talking about this political polarization in America. Or given the fact that today, when we look at this American political system, not only people from the left and also from the right, and of course, from the third party as well, everyone is very concerned regarding the direction of the country. On one hand, we need to ask the question, what is going to happen to the future about America? Given the fact the political polarization is heavily influencing not only our political agenda and also our economic agenda. But on the other hand, the answer seems very simple. Now, in a few months, we're going to encounter another GOP debate. Now, this time, is Donald Trump going to be on the stage? And what does that mean if Trump hypothetically wins the presidency? How should we understand the foreign policy under this leader? And also, living in this complicated world, how should we even understand the democracy, such a concept, throughout the centuries? And we had so many presidents throughout the years. But meanwhile, what about the future? And what about the right person is going to be elected for the right position? Well, ladies and gentlemen, it's my great honor to invite our distinguished speaker, who is Dr. Joseph Nye Jr. Again, Dr. Nye Jr. is a university distinguished service professor, and he is a former dean of Harvard's Kennedy School of Government. He also served as Assistant Secretary of Defense for International Security Affairs and Chair of the National Intelligence Council and the Deputy Undersecretary of State and he won Distinguished Service Awards from all three agencies. And of course, today we're going to talk to Dr. Nye Jr. regarding his brand new book, which is called A Life in the America Century. Well, Dr. Nye, and welcome to The Missing Piece. Thank you very much, Will. Well, Dr. Nye, I want to get started. Again, I have to say that as I read through your book and by different chapters, number one, a person like you who's rich in international relationships handling and also you served in multiple departments and agencies the fundamental question i want to ask you and this is something we're very much interested in knowing how should we understand the political polarization today in the u.s or should we say this political division i know in your book you mentioned the period of Clinton administration, and also you touch on George Bush administration, even Obama administration. But when it comes to political polarization, or when it comes to political division, are we supposed to be surprised in this year, continue to see this rise of political division, or this is something is doomed to happen? What do you think of that? Well, you're right that uh, political polarization is uh, strong in America now and that that's a problem. Um, you have to put it in some degree perspective. One is that uh, there's always uh, political polarization to some extent. I mentioned in the uh, memoir that uh, when I was growing up uh, in northern New Jersey, uh, it was a very Republican area and we knew no Democrats at all. Mm. Uh, and uh, this is within 30 miles of New York City. 
so and when Franklin Roosevelt died, who was a great uh, hero uh, for most of the country in in the area where I was growing up, they said, this is a very wonderful thing. The dictator is dead. Mm. So a degree of polarization is part of American history. But that history goes through different cycles. And our domestic politics have ups and downs. I would say that we're now in a downturn of cycles. But it's worth remembering that uh, we've had downturns before and have survived them in the 1930s during the Great Depression, Roosevelt uh, worried whether democracy would continue in the United States. Mm. And in the 1960s, you had uh, uh, cities in flames, three major assassinations, and two failed presidencies, Johnson and Nixon's. Um, And we recovered from that. Um, I suspect that we'll recover from this current uh, uh, trough in uh, domestic politics, but nobody can know for sure. Mm. Dr. Knight, I want to press on with what you just said. And again, you more that you mentioned that in the early career life that, again, being uh, serving in administrations and, of course, and help, you know, come up with strategies and tactics and dealing with unprecedented events. Here's the question I want to ask. What actually inspire you to get into this political games? Because again, you know, when we talk about being part of this political system or being part of this political, I guess what we call arena, it's one thing that we can see it as an outsider, but it's another whole new story that we're actually inside of the game. So can you help us with better understanding that in your life, what actually inspire you to get into the field and also in the midst of the chaos, in the midst of the uncertainty, how did you find your political stand or even your ambition in continuing this journey? What do you say to that? Well, my father, uh, who was in business, I think wanted me to follow him in business, but I was always more intrigued by uh, international change. Mm. And, uh, so I got a PhD uh, in, uh, in in politics, uh, government, and uh, I, I first I was dealing with it primarily trying to understand the basic causes of, of political change, and um, then when uh, opportunities arose to have some influence myself on changes, um, I always uh, succumbed to the temptation, and I'm glad I did because. Um, uh, I, I think I was able to affect government policies on a couple of major issues, including uh, nuclear proliferation. Mm. Uh, but I think um, the most interesting thing to me is the difference between academic and um, political life. In, mm. in academic life, you uh, can take all the time you want to get the answer exactly right. In a political life, uh, you have to get the right answer by the right time or mm. else it's irrelevant. So it, it, the two types of engagement, analysis and uh, steering, if you want, uh, are quite different. Uh, and yet I find they're uh, completely complementary and I'm glad I did both. Mm. Professor, I want to ask about 
you know, the role of media. You know, when we talk about this political game, of course, this is something you also mentioned and wrote in the book as well. You know, you mentioned the early 60s. I, and again, I am not old enough to uh, live through that period. But I do want to um, ask the question to you is, we know that back in the days, especially the early 1960s, that media played a such important role in amplifying the political voices. And also, of course, that some uh, scholars will believe that John F. Kennedy, the you know the former uh, famous U.S. president who sadly was assassinated uh, during the period, he actually took advantage of the media while debating with his opponent Richard Nixon. Back in the days, that the role of media was actually again, as we mentioned before, to present the best quality of the candidate and report the news or even report the facts. But today. Again, what do you think of the role of media when we talk about this political polarization or this political change? And also, if we fast forward the period that media was the mirror, you know, to reflect this Clinton period, of course, the famous, notorious Monica Lewinsky case, you know, that was just surprised the entire world. So what is your take on the media today? Why do you think that today that media it's being manipulated so much by these political games or political interests? Well, it, it, there's always been a strong influence of media on po politics. Um, if you go back to uh, the 30s, the new media was radio. Mm. And Frank Roosevelt had his radio fireside chats, which mm. were very important uh, politically. Um, Kennedy uh, mastered the new media of television. Uh, and he was quite brilliant in his ability to use televised press conferences to get his points across. Um, what we've seen uh, more recently is the rise of social media mm. on the internet. And uh, there, I think you can say that Obama was quite successful. But uh, whether you like him or not, Trump was the real master mm. of, of social media in terms of capturing the agenda. And what's interesting about this is the uh, diffusion of the media. In other words, back in the days of television, you had a few major uh, television channels and people more or less watched the same media. Mm. When you have the Internet and social media, it can be tuned to uh, what you might call micro news mm. for each audience, uh, often supported by advertisement, which is again tailored to a consumer's preference for a particular uh, approach or buying a particular type of goods. So I think the problem that you have today is uh, this extraordinary diffusion of information this is becoming even more difficult now with uh, generative artificial intelligence mm. uh, because uh, you can now target a very narrow audience and have a machine develop uh, so-called news that's tailored just for that audience. It makes it very hard to develop a consensus in the country. And I think that's part of the problems we're going through now. Dr. Nye, do you think that today, again, go back to the topic of media, how much do you think today that voters actually trust 
the presence of media. I mean, again, we know that we're living in this age of artificial intelligence, as you just mentioned. And of course, we continue to celebrate the technological advancement in America. I mean, again, without the technological improvement, that life wouldn't be much easier. But meanwhile, when it comes to media, when it comes to transparency for the politicians and also for uh, those decision makers and policy makers, how much do you think the voters today are actually placing their trust in the media so that the messages from the politicians or the messages from the essential government can be understood crystal clearly? What do you say to that? Well, I, what public opinion polls show is growing distrust over the years in media, particularly what is sometimes called mainstream media. Mm. And it's been replaced by um, niche media, which, as I mentioned, tailor the approach to a particular uh, sub-audience or micro-audience. And then what they do is um, uh, play to the pre-existing preferences Mm. or ideological preferences that that small audience has. Uh, So the small audience may trust uh, the, let's say, right-wing or left-wing news blog uh, or other social media uh, approach, uh, while it doesn't trust the overall media. And that's a real problem because it as I mentioned, it's very hard to develop consensus when you don't have uh, agreement on the basic facts. Dr. Nye, I want to talk about going back to your book. I I mean, I read proportion of your book, especially that you touch on Bush era. I mean, again, we're looking at this figure and we're looking at this person that who lived through 9-11. And of course, and you know, again, he was criticized from the left and also from some of them from the right regarding the decision of Iraq. And, and again, from your perspective, why was that important for you to include this chapter or even the story on Bush that when you were trying to tell your story, again, going back to the title, it's the life in the American century. What was the story behind that? And why was that significant and important for us to understand about the Bush as a leader or even the Bush era? What do you say to that? Well, I, I, I think it's interesting to contrast two Bush eras. The father Bush, who presided over the end of the Cold War without mm. a shot being fired, and uh, Bush 43, the son, uh, who got us into an Iraq war, which is a disaster. I think having lived through the um, Vietnam War and the, the way that had disrupted American society and politics, I felt that uh, the second Bush was making a huge mistake. Mm. To some extent, as, when the Soviet Union collapsed in uh, the 90s, uh, it left the Americans um, as what's sometimes called the sole superpower. Mm. And that had the danger of hubris, of essentially of going to our heads. And I think that was true for Bush particularly. Uh, and it was aided by the shock of the terrorist attack on 9-11. I mean, uh, Bush 43, the son, uh, came in with 
a plan for relatively moderate foreign policy. Mm. But um, uh, 9-11 shook him off that, and he developed this idea that by overturning Saddam Hussein, he was going to transform Iraq and also transform the Middle East. Uh, that was a disaster. I mean, he was wrong on both counts. Mm. So I think that the reason I focus as much as I do in the book on the Iraq events was uh, because of the impact that they had. It's, it, I think Iraq War is similar to the Vietnam War, uh, a major disruptive uh, period in American history. And fast forward, let's talk about the Obama period. You know, I have to say that one of the most controversial cases, or we say um, the studies that during his presidency was related to the nation of Iran. And even today, around the entire international community, Dr. Nye, we're still talking about this ongoing tension between U.S. and Iran. We see Iran continues to develop nuclear weapons. And of course, we're still watching the war in Israel. Going back to your experience and going back to um, your book, how should we evaluate the relationship or correctly understand the relationship between U.S. and Iran under Obama period? And also, why do you think it's important for us to understand the truth in your book or from your perspective to see the whole picture? What do you say to that? Well, uh, the U.S. and Iran have fundamental differences, and they have had ever since the uh, revolution uh, in, in Iran in 79 um, and the taking of the American hostages mm. uh, from the diplomatic uh, uh, corps in the embassy. Uh, so there's been tension in the relationship for a long time. It's interesting that um, Obama tried to say, can we reach a modus vivendi, mm. not that we're going to reconcile these differences, but we can we avoid uh, provoking each other and going to war. And the feeling was that um, if Iran developed nuclear weapons, that probably would precipitate a war uh, to prevent that. Uh, it's worth noting that to, uh, Obama reached an agreement with Iran um, which uh, uh, meant that Iran allowed, set limits on how much enriched uranium it would create, and which also allowed for international inspections by the International Atomic Energy Agency to verify that. Uh, Trump withdrew from this agreement, mm. which was a huge mistake, because Iran then replied, by uh, increasing its production of enriched uranium. And the general uh, newspaper accounts suggest that uh, uh, Iran may have developed enough uh, enriched uranium uh, to be able within a month or so to produce up to two or three nuclear weapons. Notice it hasn't developed nuclear weapons yet. Mm. It's developed the capability to get just below the threshold of nuclear weapons. Um, the key question, I think, is, um, is there a way to uh, restore some degree of modus vivendi between um, 
of the U.S. and Iran. Uh, it's not easy. And Iran has its own domestic politics, mm. uh, which is the world of the of the Ayatollahs in the Islamic Republic and the international Iran Revolutionary Guard. Um, and so that it's it's not going to be easily done. Uh, if Trump returns, it probably won't be done at all. Mm. If Biden returns, I think they'll keep trying. Mm. Dr. Knight, I want to bring the topic to what's happening today. Again, as you mentioned, we're in the year of 2024, and everyone, and when I say everyone, I certainly don't just mean the citizens of the U.S. I mean the entire world pays attention to what's going to happen to this country regarding who's going to be the next president for America. Now, everyone is very anxious about this Trump versus Biden showdown. Domestically speaking, we know that not just about political polarization, it's not just about this economic agenda, but you're the expert on foreign policy. Let's bring China into our conversation. Dr. Nye, from your perspective, again, going back to the history, we look at the history, Richard Nixon opened the door to China. Again, we look at uh, the this what we call this economic agenda, the entrance of WTO uh, from China during the Bush era. And we look at this Internet uh, booming during the Clinton era until Trump and until uh, Biden. What role, excuse me, does China actually play if we are seeing this Trump versus Biden showdown in the end? Does that mean that this is a good opportunity for China to shine, to thrive politically or economically? And that also, or that means U.S. is going to be ready for another major obstacle to deal with China. What do you say to that? Well, I think if Biden uh, is reelected, you'll see a continuation of the current policy, Mm. which is great power competition but with efforts to set limits, prevent it from uh, getting out of control. Uh, if Trump is elected, it's much more unpredictable. Um, and the efforts to limit escalation and so forth that you'd have with Biden, I think, will be less in place with Trump. My own view is that um, uh, we tend to overestimate China. Mm. Uh, China is, has some impressive strengths. It also has some impressive weaknesses. We're seeing this in the short run right now with the slowdown of the Chinese economy and the uh, bursting of the great property bubble. Um, But it's more difficult than that, just the short-term effects. Uh, China's population has peaked. Its labor force peaked in Mm. 2015. The usual answer to that is technology and increasing productivity but if you look at total factor productivity in China, it's been going down and it's quite low rather than going up. And you say, well, where could you get more technological change? Uh, it would be from probably the private sector and entrepreneurs. And yet Xi Jinping is clamping down on that sector and insisting on tighter party control. Mm. So uh, I think China's own problems uh, domestically um, uh, are quite serious, 
and uh, we shouldn't overestimate or underestimate China. Dr. Knight, I got two more questions before letting you go. Let's talk about the nation of Ukraine. And again, if we read the messages clearly, particularly during the Christmas time, the current president of Ukraine, President Zelensky, shared multiple powerful messages through social media. And again, if we can summarize the messages um, uh, in a simple way, and he strongly believed that the nation of Ukraine would stand strong, and in terms of facing uh, the war with Russia, the citizens shall never give up, because again, the president believed the whole world is standing behind Ukraine. But meanwhile, some believe or some scholars argue that it is time in the year of 2024 for U.S. to stop funding or stop providing necessary financial or any other support to the country because domestic issues shall be the priority for America today. So the next question again to you is what is your assessment continue to provide funding or any type of support to the nation of Ukraine. Meanwhile, we were looking at the domestic crisis in America. What do you say to that? Well, I think if you look at um, public opinion polls, you'll see that two-thirds of Americans support providing military and other economic assistance to Ukraine. But there is a um, what I may call an isolationist um, component of the Republican Party, which is strong in the right wing of the party in Congress, which is holding that uh, support for Ukraine hostage to the domestic changes, particularly immigration changes that they want. So in that sense, this is a case where our uh, bad period of polarization and domestic politics that we started with is affecting a major international issue. My own view is it would be a huge mistake for the United States not to support Ukraine. Mm. Dr. Knight, I want to wrap up our conversation again, going back to the title of your book called A Life in the American Century. I mean, again, we're looking at the role that you played over the years, serve as Assistant Secretary of Defense. And of course, again, Chair of the National Intelligence Council and the Deputy Undersecretary of the State. All those glorious titles and the rich experience that you accumulated over the years, what would you expect the readers to understand about you and your life when they finish reading the last chapter of your book? I mean, again, Dr. Knight, don't get me wrong. As a, as a, a reader who is fascinated about someone like you, I could not put the book down just one chapter over another. But for any other our readers and audience, what would what could you expect them to understand? And simply they're not and they don't have the experience that you do or they don't have this uh, accumulation of richness as what you had. So what are your expectations and how would you expect the readers to appreciate that your life as America in American century? Well, I think the uh, the message of the book is that we're going to live through an extraordinary amount of change, both technological and social. Mm. And being able to adjust to that change is going to be critical for everyone. And my effort to adjust to change has been partly analytical uh, and 
partly uh, political or policy oriented. And what I try to argue in the book is it's possible to do both, Mm. but you have to keep in mind that the two are quite different in terms of what I mentioned earlier, uh, time and time pressures, but also in terms of power. And um, one has to, as an analyst, not let power corrupt one's thought. And yet, on the other hand, as a political uh, policy person or activist, one has to realize that without power, you can't implement your ideas. Mm. So the book is basically uh, an effort to describe the interplay between those two aspects of life. How do you have a uh, how do you have a clear analytical mind serve as a public intellectual and occasionally serve as a government official? Um, I think what the book shows it it can be done, but it raises lots of problems. And I think that is a great reminder for our candidates on the left and also our candidates on the right, and of course. That for anyone that who thinks that being a politician or getting into this political game is going to be a piece of cake, well, guess what? And we are going to show them wrong because we do need how to balance, as you said, Doctor Nye, between power and the selfishness, and between power and the righteousness. Well, ladies and gentlemen, again, it's my great honor to speak to Dr. Joseph Nye Jr. Again, Dr. Nye, it's a university distinguished service professor. He was the former dean of Harvard's Kennedy School of Government. He also served as Assistant Secretary of Defense for International Security Affairs, Chair of the National Intelligence Council, and the Deputy Under Secretary of State. I strongly encourage everyone go online. To check out his brand new book, and should we say, amazing book, which is called "A Life in the American Century."